Today in the Eater Upsell studio, we are talking with David Leibovitz, former pastry chef at Chez Panisse, blogging god, and author of like more cookbooks than I can count. He is one of the most OG food bloggers. Eater wouldn't exist maybe without... Basically, the entire internet would not exist without him. He's the Tim Berners-Lee of food writing. That's accurate. That's accurate. That was the best intro we've ever done. <laughs> What was it like the late 90s people were like black plates and square plates and like these right. like and they were awful and some hard I think a really good indicator of like I'm not at a restaurant where I want to stay for another minute is if they have black square plates mm-hmm. but um but I think so many more places are now thinking about their plateware and their tabletop in a in a way that's like, okay, someone is going to take a picture of this. How can I make sure that we know it's here? Like at Dove's Luncheonette with this blue plate that you're talking about. Like there are the plates that they use at the Nomad, the restaurant from the 11 Madison Park guys in the in the Nomad Hotel. That's this custom stoneware by some guy in New Jersey who like throws all of this pottery for them. And like it's beautiful. And they were, I think, the first people in New York to have it. And now it's showing up everywhere. But so many people just think of it as the nomad plates. I think of it as the nomad plates, even when I see other people using that style of earthenware, yeah. whatever. But I got to tell you one thing <laughs> that was a trend for many moons, I feel like maybe for the last five years, but doesn't quite mesh with this new thing of, you know, plates being the identifying quality of a restaurant on Instagram is that slate thing that everybody started using like three years ago instead of a plate or a board like the cheese board as plate for like non-cheese items right like there's just a burger on it or here's like three tacos or here's a dab of something and then like a little swirl of something and then there's a little bread there's literally no thing in a restaurant that i hate more than being served a food that you'd need the edge of a plate as like ballast for <laughs> that's like served on a slate or like a wooden trough or something. Yeah. Like like there's a reason plates have lips. There's a reason they have edges. It's like the physical mechanics of using a fork and knife. Like mm-hmm. if you're eating freaking pasta and you have the last two pastas and you're chasing them around the stupid plate, you need the edge of the plate to support it so it can get onto your fork. I mean, there's a reason why that's how the, you know, the the vessel evolved over the years. Yeah, like there's a reason things are shaped the way they're shaped. And when you're like, you know what I'm going to do is serve macaroni and cheese on a flat piece of rock. Like that's just a fuck you to the diner. I mean, you that's also just feel like an idiot when you get served if it's you and somebody else. And then you just have these like weird oblong slates on your plate that are like it's not using the space very well. I don't understand the emotional thought process on the part of whoever designed the restaurant who's like, you know, like people really like using forks and knives and plates. And I feel like we should subvert that by using slabs of nature. You know what's wrong with restaurants today? I'll tell you, it's plates. (laughs) How can we remove plates from the equation and free our diners from the tyranny of structure of a vessel that will contain the food in front of them where they want to eat it? I just, I, I mean, I guess we should be grateful they're expanding our minds. Every time I get one of those slates, too, or like even worse, the thing I hate even more is the weird, like, uh, two inch thick plank of wood that's mm-hmm. maybe, um, like been shellacked, even though it has kind of rough edges. Yeah, because it's rustic. 
super rustic. Um, I always think that it's you're you eat your food, your food's done. Maybe you leave some of it on the whatever, and then the you know the back waiter takes it and brings it to the dishwasher, and then there's just somebody back there that's picking all your food out of the crannies of this weird. You oh, know, it's tragic. I never thought about it. That I always, way. I think about it every single time. That oh. like this is like a dish. This must be a difficult thing for the dishwasher to make because it has not it has a unusual surface where food and can get trapped. And it's porous too. And I mean, like porous. you can't just run wood through a dishwasher because it'll start drying out and it's warping. It's got to be hand washed. Nobody wins here. David, welcome to the Eater Upsell. Well, thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. I've always admired Eater. I read Eater, and here I am. So, why are you in New York right now? Um, I'm actually working. So I'm working with my editor over at um, Crown Books. Um, and I get to go over there a lot. And they, have, they give me coffee and cookbooks. <laughs> and they stock me up with things. And I eat bagels when I go back to my little apartment. So I'm here um, soaking in New York culture. That's cool. You like going to your publisher? You have a- I love my I'm the only like author who loves their publisher. Um, I can't say enough good things about them. And I'm not just saying that because they're probably listening to this. But um, you know, a lot of, if you've ever written a book or ever, um, you know, most authors, you, you write a book, you turn it in and you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what they're going to do with the cover, what they're going to do with the content, what they're going to cut out. Um, and they're really interactive. They ask me what I like. I ask them what they like, what should I do? And we we have a great relationship. So that's, fingers crossed. Yeah. That's like magical. You found a unicorn. <laughs> Well, it actually is the way things should be, you know, when you, you know, in any kind of work situation, you, sh- you want to enjoy the people you work with because it's a symbiotic thing. Um, you know, let people do what they do well, and then they should let you do what you do well. Um, and, you know, hopefully it all comes out well. So have they published all of your cookbooks? <clears throat> no, they took over. Well, they they published all but my first two. Your um, first cookbook, Room, <clears throat> room, for, room for Dessert, was your first cookbook, It right? was in 1998. Eight or nine. I am really obsessed with that cookbook. Did you know I? It's out of print. It right? is, and yeah. I own two copies of it. One of which I bought at a used bookstore because I was like, I need to own this because it's mm-hmm. fantastic. And the other one of which I bought for an exorbitant amount of money on Amazon because I thought I had lost the first one. I paid like seventy four dollars <laughs> oh, for that book. I mean, it was, it, but it was completely worth it because I, I, it was one of the first books that I ever really kind of found my joy for mm. cooking in that coconut macaroon recipe yeah. really changed my life the success of that book was actually due in fact a lot to the fact that i had been working for 30 years as a pastry chef and had all these great recipes and people were always asking me can i get the recipe for the macaroons can i get the recipe for the ginger cake so it's kind of all these great recipes that i cultivated for 30 years distilled into that book um, and a few years ago, you know, the book had gone out of print because the publisher stopped doing cookbooks. Um, I got the rights back to that in my second book. And I got to actually, I thought, first I thought, well, I'm just going to sit in front of the computer and cut and paste and make a new book and really sell it. And then I started reading them. I was like, you know what? All these recipes, I want to make them again. And, you know, recipes change. So after 10 years, I got to revisit all the recipes, add things, um, change techniques. It was great. So I came out with my publisher, 10 Speed, as ready for dessert. And that was the first two books sort of hybridized yeah. together. Yeah. That so, must have been really interesting to also, not just to revisit old recipes, but the the years and years of, of preparation that went into it. And when you describe mm-hmm. it that way, it makes me think of like a musician talking about their first record. It's like, I've been writing songs my whole life and here are the very, very best ones. 
Well, a know? cookbook is an experience. Um, there was a big brouhaha recently on the internet that you were a little bit a part of. I was. Um, about a cookbook about France. And, you know, first of all, people don't realize what goes into writing a cookbook. It's a two-year process minimum. Um, you know, you work hard, things get changed, there's photos, there's copy edits, there's proofs, there's translations, there's metrics, da, 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 da. And when I wrote My Paris Kitchen, I was at a certain place in my life, which was very interesting. I was having actually a personal crisis, um, and I lost the manuscript, and it was a very difficult time. And, um, you know, good things, so I had to kind of reboot everything. It's like when your computer, you know, too many windows are open, all of a sudden it crashes. That's what happened. And so I had to start all over, not literally, but um, it happened in my head. So I had to start all over again, but I had something to say. Uh, and the book kind of tells a story about that period of my life for the last, you know, I've lived in Paris for 11 years, but it's sort of like the last five years. And right after we shot the book, the photos, the photographer came to Paris, shot in my kitchen. I had two weeks before the book was due, and I rewrote a lot of the book because he had helped me see something else that I hadn't seen in what I do. And so I wanted to include that. What was it that you saw? It was a tone. Uh, cookbooks have a tone. Um, you know, I tend to be sarcastic and I tend to be, you know, I'm a restaurant cook. And I tend to be, you know, a little obnoxious sometimes, but that's okay. You know, it's fine. Um, but I appreciate, you know, and you have to write, you have to choose your words carefully. So I changed a lot of the words to soften the meaning. Um, living in a foreign country, it's very easy to be critical, but the longer you live there, you realize why people are the way they are. Like, why are Americans, why do we all we want to do is go shopping, you know? <laughs> <laughs> why do we carry cups of coffee around? It seems funny. I am often explaining it to French people. I'm explaining French people to Americans, but it, um, I learned a lot about French people um, and I kind of didn't want to be critical. I wanted to sort of be honest. And that was some of the rewriting that I did was kind of helping me get toward that, make it more um, inviting and a welcoming, for lack of a better word. <laughs> no, that's, that's not, it sounds very sort of therapeutic in a way. Well, writing a book is therapy, right? You know, you write articles for Eater that are pretty... Um, uh, I want to say profound, but or deep. They actually are about a subject. Um, you know, you wrote one about the recent brouhaha, and actually, it's sort of therapeutic because you have something in your head and you want to get it off your chest and you want to explain it, and you also want to defend your position in a way. Um, you know, on Twitter and so forth, you can't. You know, you can go, "This, this sucks." It's actually better <laughs> to write a whole article like why this sucks, and you know, you can soften it, you can explain it, and make it more. I don't know what the word is. More articulated? Yeah. I, I don't, but it's true. I think you can add context right. and, yeah. and. Well, also, writing is all about editing. You know, you write this long article and then you edit it down. You take out paragraphs and you start screaming. You know, it took me three weeks to write these paragraphs. And, you know, mm -hmm. But then they don't make sense three weeks later. So you cut them out. Well, how does that translate into a recipe? You know, recipes, you know, when you're working for two years on this book and then when you photograph it, you're actually make, remaking the recipes and you might not have made them for a year because you turned in your manuscript a year before and all of a sudden you have a food stylist and you're buying the ingredients and, and you know, all of a sudden the food stylist says, oh, you add onions here? This is usually where we would add like the shallots. I'm like, oh, I never thought about adding shallots. <laughs> um, I was really fortunate. I had a great food stylist who the first day she said to me, you know what? 
I need you to make all the desserts because I want them to look like you made them, not like I made them. Wow. She really knows her stuff then, huh? Yeah. I mean, she's a really good food stylist. And we ended up, you know, then I ended up making certain things like the cassoulet because she would have to sit there and follow the recipe where I know the recipe. I could, and I actually wanted to make it again. And Mm -hmm. as you make it, you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't add this and maybe I should add this and maybe I should tell people this and so forth. Wow. How do you know when it's done? Like when it's It's never done. I mean, food is never done. You know, Julia Child took 10 years to write her first book and she kept revising it and revising and revising it because things change, tastes change. You know, the last 10 years in America, chocolate's changed. All of a sudden we have bean to bar chocolate, high percentage chocolate. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, some recipes don't work with that and some do. And so you have to modify to the times. The good thing about a blog is you can go back and... Yeah. And change it. That was the sound of typing on the table. (laughs) So David, were you always, always a food person? Did you grow up wanting to cook? Did you grow up, were you the kid in the kitchen or the teenager that was with a frying pan? I was fascinated by the good seasoned salad dressing bottle um, that told you (laughs) how much vinegar, how much oil in the packet. It was my first baking project. Um, And I remember mixing that, that together and shaking it. And I was like, oh my God, I just made something. Wait, what is, what is this product? I don't think it's How old are you? I remember this, but only so vaguely. No, maybe this is a California thing. No, 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 no. no. It was commercials with um, Anna Maria Alberghetti. She talked about making this Italian dressing. It was a a cruet that you bought, a glass cruet with these packages of seasonings. And on the cruet was a little line that said vinegar. Then there was one that said oil. Oh, my God. And so you added whatever vinegar to it, and then you added oil to the line. It's like the tang of salad dressings. I love this. But it was all pre- Pre-measured. You don't have to do anything. So you put, but but you don't yeah. have to do anything. I mean, that's what a recipe is. You don't have to do anything. You just do right. what it tells you to do. Yeah, well, that's when people go, I can't bake. I'm like, a cup of sugar is a cup of sugar. You know, it's not like making a steak where you have to kind of evaluate it and say when it's done. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. bake a cake for 45 minutes. Yeah, 350. So, so what's the path that led you from a glass <clears throat> crude of salad dressing to chez panisse? That's the sound of all my the wind coming out of me. I actually went to <laughs> film school in New York. I wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, and filmmaking is actually pretty boring. You sit around all day mm-hmm. and do nothing or you think and you wait and you, you know, then something happens for 10 minutes and you wait for three hours and so forth. And I just couldn't deal with that. Um, and I didn't know what I want to do with my life. And so I ended up moving to San Francisco, um, with, uh, someone who I'd met when I was traveling in Turkey, a very nice woman. And I said, well, if I'm going to work you know, I need a job. So I wanted to work in a restaurant. I thought, well, I should work in the best restaurant, you know, in San Francisco. What, what year is this? <laughs> um, <laughs> what decade I, is I hope this? There's no fact checkers out there. I think it was 1983. Okay. I um, mean, this is when California cuisine was becoming, you know, the age of Alice Waters, Jeremiah Tower, Bradley Ogden, and Judy Rogers. People were getting notoriety, but it was pretty, it was like a new thing. It was the perfect mm-hmm. time to join the team. Yeah, well, Chez Panisse, the Chez Panisse menu book had just come out. And it was, I read it, I was like, oh my God, I have to work here. And so I went in to apply for a job and the chef at the time told me to get out because um, she was really busy. So I left um, <clears throat> and I went back six months later when I heard she was leaving. Um, <laughs> I have to say, she's a very, she's a great person. I know her now. Um, I've never talked to her about What's her story. name? I don't want to say, That's but okay. hey, she's great. She's great. Um, <laughs> she's someone who I totally respect 150%. So. You, know, you shouldn't just walk into a restaurant and, you know, say, can I work here? So <laughs> <laughs> um, anyhow, so I started working there. Um, and it was really, that was when 
at five o'clock, there was a line out the door and onto the sidewalk. And as soon as like the door opened, it was mobbed until we had to sh- you know, shut the door because the neighbors, there was a thing in the neighborhood, we couldn't serve food after a certain time. And it was like that, you know, I worked there for a long time, but it was really crazy in those days. So what did you have to bring to the kitchen there? Did you have you know, prior pr- pastry experience or cooking experience. Mm-hmm. You just said, I really, I want to do this. I want to learn. I had worked in a restaurant in college in New York, upstate New York. And it was actually a farm to table restaurant before anyone knew what it was. We just bought stuff from the local farmers. You know, we were ahead of our time, but that's how people used to cook. Now it's elitist. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were, you know, a bunch of people in Birkenstocks. And I got a job there um, because the chef said, well, you, he goes, I, you know, I didn't really have any experience, but he goes, you know how to move in the kitchen. You've got the moves. <laughs> So you got the moves, kid. Yeah. <laughs> so I had the moves. Um, and then so when I came to San Francisco, I was at, a, you know, I said, I'll go to another farm to table restaurant. Um, the ultimate farm to table restaurant. Yeah. And at the time, it, you know, Chez Panisse was, you know, it was a rarity. Um, and it was a, it really changed the way we eat in America. And a lot of people don't realize that the, the next generation doesn't, you know, now you get on, you get on the airplane, there's radicchio in the salad. You know, you go to McDonald's and they have arugula. Right. Yeah, that's unthinkable, you know. And even, you know, you go to whatever, uh, D'Agostino's and they have organic apples. It's like, when I was a kid, that was unthinkable. You know, everything was wrapped in plastic and a styrofoam tray. And, you know. It was, it was, I mean, I, I have very, no really formed memories of the early 80s because I was mm. not alive for much of it. But um, I thought you were going to say you were stoned. <laughs> yeah. Okay, was, that's my excuse. I was a stoned <laughs> one-year-old in 1983. Um, mm. But but no, I think I think you're really really right. I mean, I have I have clear memories as a kid in the late 80s mm-hmm. of my parents bringing home fancy lettuces and it being a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And that sort of Chez Panisse silver palette cookbook kind of. Yeah. palette of Mediterranean slash California flavors. And it was this idea that it was okay for stuff to not be subtle. Mm-hmm. It was really beautiful and crazy. And well, weird. it was also, it was okay for a recipe to be about the, about the ingredients rather than about, you know, making, you know, coco vin. It was about mm-hmm. getting this chicken that was really good or, you know, knowing the wine you're using, um, buying a shallot, you know. <laughs> and the Silver Palette cookbook was actually part of it. It was a different sort of path. Um, but it was an amazing cookbook. Yeah. And they brought it back a few years ago. They re- uh, re-released it. Yeah, the 25th anniversary. I actually worked on that. That was back when I was a okay. cookbook editor. It was a great, but I don't know if it had the same, I think people have moved on um, from it, but it was a really amazing, that changed the way America ate as well. I totally agree. And I think I think you're right. I mean, you know, the, the reissue was amazing because it reminded everyone about the original, but mm-hmm. what we re- but the original was, was the magic. I mean, it yeah. was... It was really, but how, so pastry though. I mean, that's not usually farm to table. Were you working with Lindsay Shear? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I was a line cook upstairs um, in the cafe, and I always used to look at the pastry people. I was like, "Oh, that looks really easy. They're just standing around making, you know, decorating cakes and baking cookies." And I want to do that because <laughs> <laughs> um, we were upstairs, you know, going crazy, you know, as line cooks. Um, but actually, I was very fascinated by what they were doing, and I would always go down there and talk to them and hang out, um, stalking them. Uh, and then there was an opening and I thought, you know what, it's like being a brain surgeon, having a specialty is actually better than just being a generalist. So I just thought I want to go work in the pastry department. And so I, I got the, the, they moved me down there. Um, it was actually a wonderful, you know, it was an amazing experience. I, nowadays I am, I, I goosebumps. I can't even talk about, you know, it was really profound. 
era um, for cooking, for me, um, Chez Panisse. Um, and I was really I'm thrilled that I was a part of it. I got to meet people like Richard Olney, Jane Grigson would come in, James Beard, Julia Child. They would sit in the kitchen. I remember Daryl Hannah and Jackson Brown had dinner with me. You know, <laughs> in the kitchen they put like little boot benches next. You know, I was like, I couldn't breathe. It um, was a bit of like a kind of Hollywood um, hangout a little bit, right? Uh, sort of, but you know, it's a very you know it's, people say Berkeley elitist, but it was a very democratic restaurant. Anybody, you know, whether you're Daryl Hannah or you know, Helen Radner, whoever she is who got that tweet from me. <laughs> you know, you can go in the kitchen and say, can I go in the kitchen? It's like, sure, come on in. We used to let people come in. They used to hang mm-hmm. out with us and talk to us. And, you know, I'd say, do you want to go, can we see the walk? I'm like, sure, let's go downstairs. Um, and I th- I'm pretty sure it still is like that. I feel like that's been formalized into service at a lot of restaurants now, like at mm-hmm. these very high-end tasting places. It's like, okay, and for your 17th course, we're going to pick you up from your table and walk you into yeah. the kitchen and you're going to like eat something hand-fed to you by our chef de cuisine. And... And it, that formality, it's like exciting to go behind the curtain, but it's still performance. Well, there's also nothing worse. You know, I sometimes, you know, now that I have a blog, I like to go in the kitchen sometimes. There's nothing worse than looking in the kitchen or going in there and everyone's scowling. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> this is not a good place. Um, and you go to Chez Panisse, everyone's usually pretty not, you know. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> everyone has their moments. <laughs> well, the kitchen at Chez Panisse in the 80s is legendary as a mm-hmm. place. I mean, you know, I feel like Greg probably knows the... The stories more than I, I grew do, up. But... I grew up in Berkeley, and oh, okay. I never went there until I was like an older teenager, and didn't really know about it. But I've been back many times in the last few years since I've been writing about food, and I just I love it. But... Well, Berkeley's a pretty special place, especially it's there's, awesome. there's a whole discussion this week about Monterey Market. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and people don't realize like that was a really democratic place. You know, they would just buy stuff that people would pull up in their car with you know a couple cases of peaches, and Bill Fujimoto was like, "I'll take them." When they just put them out, to put the crates out, and everyone would, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever they cost. I mean, they weren't expensive. It's uh, one one little anecdote, I guess, to talk about how I kind of understand that restaurant and its aura. I remember, so there was that fire, what was it, like two years yeah. ago? And I remember hearing on the on the local news, they were talking to these, you know, burly firemen, you know, the guys that like did it, that saved the day. And it was like way early in the morning. And I think the fire chief said that like when they heard that the restaurant was burning down they were like this is Chez Panisse like we have to yeah. and like he started crying or something yeah. like yeah. it's just like it's like, this huge important mm-hmm. important thing for that for that city you know mm-hmm. but it's funny because so for me I grew up in Chicago and like I love Chicago someone told me Chicago is Paris of America the Paris of America that's interesting yeah. we're gonna have to revisit okay. that idea I think but but um but I grew up in Chicago, and my my awareness of Chez Panisse was um, much more salacious. I'm, I mean, I knew about it as a restaurant where extraordinary food was happening, and I'd heard of Alice Waters, and I'd heard of Jeremiah Tower, but I had also <laughs> heard that the kitchen was a den of sin. Like, what did you hear? I mean, I mean, was it about I, me? <laughs> <laughs> there was this one guy, David Leavitt, in the pastry section. No, um, I mean, it was. I don't know. I feel like there, there were. It, it was probably just like shameless gossip mongering, but people were just like, oh yeah, you know, like the food's incredible, the kitchen's amazing, but like everybody's like screwing everybody's in the walk-in and doing coke and... off the freezer top and like. <laughs> okay, well, I, you know, I was there for, for for a period of time and I saw certain things and participated in certain things, but um, to be honest. diplomatic. No, but to be honest, there wasn't any, you know, I've worked in some restaurants where it was like, oh my God, um, you know, there was it was Berkeley in those days, you know. It was people had been, you know, 
people were hooking up with other people, um, as people tend to do who work together, especially when they're hot, attractive, young cooks, you know, <laughs> and our hormones are going wild you know, after work. I mean, you know, we're yeah. drinking beer and wine and so forth. You know, things happen and, you know, there's 140 people that work at Chez Panisse. Something's going to, you know. Yeah. No, that's the law of math. kind of inevitable said, you know, that someone's going to hook up. It's like things will join up. It's like DNA. So how long were you there? I was there 13 years. I left for a few years and then came back or went back. And immediately went to Paris? Or was there a... No, I left when I wrote my first cookbook because um, I had I was, I turned 40 and I was getting older. And it was really hard to stand for that long period of time. And I'd just done it. I had done everything I could do there. And I remember Alice talking to me and she said, get the hell out of my restaurant. No, she said, <laughs> she said, well, you know, your style is very different than, than here. You should write a book. I was like, okay. Oh, okay. So I did. Um, and it was, it is different. You know, Alice's idea of the perfect dessert is a, you know, exquisite peach, which is terrific. I love that. People need to stop making fun of that, by the way. I know you, David Chang, was it, who yeah. like yeah. dismissed the entire city of San Francisco? Well, you know, the thing about like a, a perfect croissant, does it need like jam, butter? And so, you know, that's mm -hmm. good enough on its own, a really good piece of bread or whatever. Um, you know, that's kind of the distillation of Chez Panisse. It's like the perfect glass of white wine, the perfect, you know, steak. Mm -hmm. um, the peach just happens to be this very sexy, um, juicy, salacious. Because it's not just a peach that they picked up across the street at the Andronico's or whatever it's you know they and a good peach can't be um, raised industrially because they're so delicate they have to be picked when they're just ripe you know they used to come in in these flats and you know each one cost the restaurant at the time like two dollars each you know that was our cost but you know how much can you charge for a peach you know yeah when you mm -hmm. mark it up but and your style was less the perfect peach chocolate the place. chocolate, chocolate. <laughs> yeah yeah um i was actually very interested in chocolate so i went to school in belgium to learn chocolate making and chocolate um decorating and all that kind of stuff what do you chocolate school is like <clears throat> a real thing yeah oh yeah i went to i was a at the time it was calibut college um berry calibut is a chocolate company it's now cacao berry which is french and calibut which is belgian They've merged, but it was at the time of the Calibut School. So I went there to do chocolate, and it was really amazing because I had never, you know, Chez Panisse also isn't about fancy desserts, so I had never done things like decorating and making scribbles and designs, mm -hmm. and chocolate cages, and just working with cho dipping chocolates. Um, and then I went to school in Paris as well at uh, Ecole Le Nôtre, which is another professional-only school um, for candy making. Which so was amazing. Th this was after shaping, so this yeah. was yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Candy making is crazy. I have attempted this once, and it was mm. extraordinarily. It's it's straight chemistry. I mean, it looks yeah. like a meth lab. Well, I took this course. It was called um, ancient uh, old fashioned candies. So we did things like licorice whips and you know lollipops, and we had this French. Um, professor, French uh, chef, who was our teacher, who was amazing. You know, he could do everything. It didn't even you know he didn't even have to you know think about it um, and he was so professional and such a nice guy um, it was funny because that um, that particular class no one in the class was nice to me I didn't speak French everybody was mean to me um, the classes are all in French and I had you know so I said when I realized they didn't understand me I could I realized I could say anything I wanted to them and I, you know, this woman who was mean to me I was like you know you're actually kind of pretty but you're such a you know I didn't say salope in French. <laughs> I didn't say that. Um, I said, you know, you should be nicer. You should smile. You look. But anyhow, the chef had 
picked up on this whole difficulty I was having with everyone else. And he grabbed me the last day and he spent the whole day with me in the factory where oh. they make all the candies. And I was like, <laughs> I love you. I mean, oh. that's a real professional too. He's not, he didn't have an ego. Yeah. He just he w- wants to share his craft. I would imagine those chocolate guys are probably pretty serious. I mean, I feel like that's almost like a, a stereotype of pastry people. They're very serious and kind of... But one thing I've learned doing this a long time is the really good, serious masters of what they do are nice mm-hmm. and they want to share. They don't have an ego about it. They're like, you know what? I make chocolate. You know, they're, they know that they're good at it. They don't have anything to prove. You know, they make good stuff. Yeah. And I know a lot of them in Paris, These cho- the really good chocolatiers don't, um, you know, they're really nice guys. People that own the, the candy shops, the, the bakeries, the good ones. Um, they're just really good people. So you lived in Paris for a decade plus. For 12 years. And now you speak French. Oui. <laughs> ah ben oui. Obviously, obviously, <laughs> great at French. I, I need to hear no more. We'll be, we'll be conducting the remainder of this conversation in French. I speak like four words of French and they're all like... No, when people say to me, how long did it take you to learn French? I'm like, the French don't even speak the sharp French. I mean, they make mistakes... There's a spelling. What? Yeah, there's a dictée every year. It's a competition for people's comprehension of French. Because um, it's very difficult for French people. There's, you know, 14 verb tenses, whereas in English we have seven or something. And, you know, it's you like, go to dinner parties and people are discussing grammar. You know, when was the last time you discussed grammar in, you know, in America? So did you have to, like, <laughs> crack open a book or did you use Berlitz mm. tapes or anything? Or it was just, like, that weird thing of being in a place for so long that you just... It seeps into your is blood. It, I'm uh, I went to school for a while, um, but it was a little difficult. But it was okay, you know, because I learned stuff. But I'm not that good at, you know, homework at 50 is not very <laughs> exciting. Um, that so sounds I, like the name of a book right there, Homework yeah. at 50. <laughs> Let me write that down. Yeah. The next cookbook from David Lieber. Right. But I have a French partner who doesn't speak English. So, um, that w- and I met, we met almost, you know, six months after I moved there. Um, it was pretty, we had a lot of misunderstandings. Good incentive to learn. Yeah. That's very yeah. romantic comedy. That- yeah, I mean, there were some really funny things that happened because of my misunderstanding. Um, like what? <laughs> <laughs> the less embarrassing ones, you know, in French, um, you can say like deux heures or deux heures. Deux heures is uh, 12 o'clock where deux heures is... Um, two o'clock. So those sound like exactly the same. Duzero, duzero. Wait. Yeah. It's like duzero, duzero. One's oh, there's like, like a... two euros. One's twelve euros. It's like what? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I one day I was waiting for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what a douchebag. Whoa. Oh, but but you know, love prevails. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's a really. He's, it's funny because all my friends are like, he is so great. Like all my women friends love him. They're like, he really listens to me. I'm like, I know. Get away from him. <laughs> Does he have a, a strong French accent when yes. he speaks English? He's su- yeah, under the dictionary, like where it says Parisian, that's a picture of him. <laughs> he's super Parisian, um, but he's super nice. And everywhere we go, people fall, like even in France, like, you know, we get on the bus and he'll start talking to the driver and they're like best friends after like six minutes. And <laughs> I like, find, how do you do that? I think that's a, it's a really <laughs> important skill, I think, for a writer to have is the ability to fall in love with a person who helps you be a better writer by talking to people you would never mm-hmm. want to talk to. Mm-hmm. Like my husband is great at that. I get really freaked out in certain social settings and he's like, Helen, I found some person who's amazing yeah. and he should be your next story. And I'm like, I'm so glad I have you. 
Like mm-hmm. it's terrific teamwork. Well, if you're shy or you know, especially if you live in a foreign country, you're it's scary. Yeah. Going in. Yeah. We actually have this joke sometimes we go into a restaurant. I'm like, you go ask for a table, because if I do, we'll get seated like way in the middle of nowhere. He's like he's like, No, 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 because he doesn't see that. But if I go out with like my American friends, sometimes they'll put us in like, you know, they'll hear our accents. Oh, the Americans in the back, Siberia for them. Yeah. yeah. But Le Siberia. Le that's, Siberia. But that's kind of a in a, a myth in a way, because a lot of people don't realize in France, a lot of the times the waiters don't speak English. So if there's a waiter who speaks English, they'll put all the Americans in his or her section. Oh. So the myth, you know, and I've seen that happen just because, you know, it actually works. Um, you know, the waiters have to, you know, they have to have the patience to sit there and, you know, translate the menu. So right. you're not always shunted to the Amer- American yeah. section. Right. And so Americans, like, who are always looking for a reason to be angry will say, oh, like, they've they've just sort of ghettoized us in this corner of the restaurant, yeah. all the Americans. But it turns out there's actually a practical. Yeah. So Paris is weird like that. And I feel you've, you've written, I mean, you, your cookbooks are often as much about Paris mm-hmm. as they are about actual recipes. Right. And one of the things that I've been so amazed by is how much I misperceived Paris when I was there. And I think it's because when you're an American tourist, you're not seeing yeah. a real thing. Well, you're there for a week, you're staying at a hotel, and you're going to La Durée, La Maison de Chocolade, and you're doing all those things that are fun. You're not going to, like, the cable office to argue about your bill. <laughs> you're, not, you're not, you know, the repairman isn't supposed to come. The FedEx people aren't yelling at you. Um, but just actually getting back to that point about being seated, um, one quality the French admire is that's uh, called exigence, which is being discriminating. So um, a lot of Americans, we get timid. We're not like, can I get a better table or can I sit there? I don't want that cheese that you're offering me. I want that one that looks better because um, we get scared, especially when we're on vacation. We don't live there. But actually to the French, that means that you're, you know, you know, or you're demanding. Um, so it's actually a, it's a positive quality to... Um, maybe complain or just to be say I don't want that table and you know it's a show of force mm-hmm. everything in France is kind of a show of force wow it's no wonder New Yorkers love it so much you no, know we can just be New our... Yorkers are nice everyone's nice here everyone's like can I help you <laughs> do you need a bag do you want me to carry that home for you yeah <laughs> there's been a huge holding the door for me <laughs> well I feel like French food in New York and in the US in general I think is like having this tremendous resurgence Suddenly, French, which, you know, was the dominant high cuisine reference for for America for decades and decades and decades, and then sort of got pulled back with California cuisine in the 80s and sort of Asian food coming in in the 90s and all of the crazy sort of new American farm-to-table stuff that's happened in the last decade. Like, suddenly there is this return to classical French. One thing about French cuisine is it's very ingredient-forward um, you know, a chicken dish is not meant to have 14 different spices and seasonings and all these weird, you know, it's meant to like put the chicken in the oven with some salt and pepper. And that's classic French, you know, French fare. Um, it's usually not that complicated. And it's about the ingredients rather than adding all this stuff to make it taste like something else. And I think that's sort of appealing to Americans at our point now. We've had a lot of stuff. Um, America's a very exciting, varied diverse place there's a lot of cookbooks a lot of recipes blah 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 but you know when it comes down to it there's nothing better than steak frites or you know roast chicken or cassoulet or just a simple gratin tapenade things like that and you know in my book when i was writing about it i was thinking well a lot of these recipes have kind of been discussed elsewhere um, but they do tell a story and i wanted to tell the story like this is sort of this sim- this sort of simple basic 
um, food and the fare that French people, this is how they really eat. They don't mm -hmm. you know, cook fancy food. They don't pull out recipes and make macaroons and so forth. I do, but. <laughs> Dory Greenspan's cookbook this year sort of mm -hmm. touched on the same idea. She had a, um, I'm not going to remember, what, Baking Chez Moi was mm -hmm. her book. And it was about how French home cooks cook dessert at home. Mm -hmm. and, and Or don't. Or don't. Well, mm -hmm. I remember talking to her about it and she was saying that, um, that every dinner party she would go to, there would be sort of, you know, the perfect, you know, cake that you bought from the patisserie mm -hmm. and like that's what you serve to your guests but on the nights when you're not throwing a dinner party you make these sort of beautiful simple accessible desserts or not necessarily beautiful or not um, necessarily beautiful yeah that's the thing they can be ugly ugly yeah. food i made food. floating island yesterday for my blog and i was trying to make it look pretty for a photo and i was sitting i was like well i could this is what a french person would serve it like this they wouldn't spend all this time you know fixing it and making sure it looked nice i was like you know what? i'm just going to take a picture of it in the bowl um, you know, Dory's book was very interesting because people are shocked. I say French people, you know, we say French people don't bake. It's like, well, they have bakeries. You know, French people are like, why would I make my own sausages? I can get them at the charcuterie. Those people are experts. They've been doing it for, you know, 50 years and so forth. Because in France, your job is sort of determined when you're 14 years old. So, you know, there's a certain respect for those professions. People are really good. So it's like, why would I make my own cheese or so forth? Yeah. Whereas in America cooking has become almost performance and DIY. DIY, you know, like, sport. Yeah. Um, you know, part of it's great because we're sharing, we're writing recipes, we're talking about it online, there's blogs and you know, social media, and it's exciting. You know, people are making their own sausage and they're thinking about the ingredients. I'm inclined to say that a lot of kind of the cookbooks, I mean, I'm not a, a super close cookbook follower or cookbook obsessive, but I'm inclined to say that in the last, I don't know, seven years, there's been kind of this move towards, it sounds like doing what you've been kind of doing all along, but this idea of this is the food, but it's not, you know, it's more like the lifestyle, yeah. the, the way that you serve it. And it's not so much like, you know, you need to be this, it's not this yeah. crazy operation to right. make this stuff. Tweezers and 17 yeah. dishes. Yeah. And just like, this is the, like, this is the soul of the food. And yeah. When I wrote my Paris kitchen, there's a lot of stories in the book. They're not long, um, but I love writing head notes, which are the beginning portions of recipes. I, and some of the stuff's, you know, some of the stuff just expanded into these stories that were kind of interesting or funny or quirky. Mm -hmm. um, and they help explain the recipes and a little bit about French culture and why, you know, tapenade is a certain way. Um, what happens if you go to an island? I mean, I went to this naturiste, uh, nudist island in the south <laughs> of France, and I got this amazing cake recipe. Or I got this amazing idea to make this cake. And, you know. From looking at the naked people. Yeah, well, everyone's thinking <laughs> there's this whole island, everyone's naked, because it was set up as a nudist colony in the 30s. Sounds like it, something people would talk about in high school, you know? Like a fantasy. There's oh. this island, man. They're, yeah, and it's like they're all naked French people, yeah. and you yeah. look at them. They're and naked you, all the time. And you look at them, and you come up with a cake idea. Well, actually, they told, they told us on the island that in the 50s and 60s, the showgirls used to go there for vacation, because it was the only place they didn't get tan lines. Oh. <laughs> so it's very it's all these great pictures of these really beautiful. Wait, so this is literally the place in France where the naked ladies dance? Uh, well, they don't dance anymore. They don't go there anymore. Um, <laughs> they more just lounge. So, yeah. so what cake came out of the island of naked French people? Uh, well, it's called a gâteau tropisien, or tarte au tropisien. It's a tropisien tarte. Um, and it's made, it's a cake, it's a brioche that has a little bit of orange flower water sometimes in it with a cream filling um, and a sugary top. And I actually made it 17 times when I was coming up with the recipe because I was crazy to get, you know, how much cream and it needs a little more cream, a little more, you know, how do I get it to stay high and so forth. 
Um, and that was a tough recipe, but I love that cake. And I, I had the best one of my life there, and it was so good. Uh, I just, you know, every time I go down there now, I'm like, I need that cake. I need the cake. We found the bakery. It's on the mainland, um, and you wear clothes when you go in the bakery. So um, That's good. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I hope they wear clothes when they're making the, the, the pastries. Or like a, a really strategic network of hairnets. I didn't ever look in the kitchen, but it's a pretty <laughs> conservative town. I think they all uh, wear clothes. They're like mildly horrified by the island of nude people. So what do you think about, you know, French pastry, et cetera, in New York when you come and visit? Yeah. What do you think well, about a place like Maison Kaiser where right. you just were? You're holding a Maison Kaiser coffee cup mm -hmm. right now. Maison Kaiser has been slowly colonizing Manhattan. They're popping up everywhere like Starbucks now. It's like Starbucks, but with amazing pastries mm -hmm. and like not the best coffee. Yeah, the coffee, um, you know, it's 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 not, you know, like going to one of the artisan coffee places in Manhattan that's, you know, they're all sitting around with scales and mm -hmm. measuring your coffee. And it's funny because people ask me, they go, have you had the croissant at Kaiser? What do you think of it? Or what do you think of the, you know, da, 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 some other bakery, the brioche? I'm like, you know, if you came to Paris, I wouldn't say there's a great bagel place you have to go to. <laughs> or there's this amazing cart that has egg sandwiches. You know, you need to go right. get one. You'd be like, well, I'm in Paris. So I don't, you know, here I eat pizza with pepperoni, Mexican food, um, deli stuff. Um, so I, have a, I just went in there and it looks really nice. The bread looks good. I've been having a little trouble with the bread. Um, you know, I've been in the States for a few months. And you get really used to bread all the time. And I bought a baguette the other day that looked beautiful over in Brooklyn, and it was crusty and lovely. And I took a, it ripped the end off, and I bit into it, and it was so sweet. I was like, wow, sugar in bread. Like, mm. I feel like New York's not a bread city for some reason. Mm. I feel like it's good some places, but not in the everywhere sense. Well, we don't have some... the same bread culture that yeah. they do in France. Um, and I was actually talking to someone. I said, you know, when I'm staying in Brooklyn, there's no bakeries, and we should have like a bread bakery. And they said, oh, we don't need another upscale address here. It's sort of, I was like, Bread is not, you know, bread is like the most peasant basic food. You, you look at pictures of like old French peasants and Italians, you know, there's a big loaf of bread and some wine, you know, from the jug and the, you know, the mule is in the background, you know, with their shoulder. So it's funny that some people think of bread as being elite or upscale. I guess it's the sort of return to artisanality, you know, I mean, I think mm -hmm. you grow up like buying thrice plastic wrapped Pillsbury sandwich bread mm -hmm. and then suddenly the idea of a rustic loaf or a yeah. real baguette does feel kind of decadent in exactly the same way that in the early 80s California cuisine like felt kind of decadent. Yeah. Well, I think there's a reluctance and and it's understandable a lot of people don't like f feeling like they're being reprimanded. Um, you know I often you know I recently I bought some shishito peppers. They're like Padron peppers but they're longer and, and I, harder to say. Yeah I think yeah. they were from Florida or Mexico or something and people went I put a picture on Instagram people were going nuts they're like mm -hmm. where are those from and why'd you buy those I'm like they're from the you know where coffee's from and chocolate's from and so forth and I didn't like feeling reprimand. It's like, you know, I eat well, I try to buy good stuff, but I, here I am in New York and there was these peppers I don't get in France. Um, and it's kind of, it's just not, no one wants to be scrutinized, you know, this whole thing. I, you know, no one, wants the, no one wants to eat with the food police, like, peering over their shoulder. You know, every once in a while, you might go to Dunkin' Donuts and get a donut. Um, you know, I love donuts. Mm -hmm. I haven't been in a while, but... But, and they're and they're great for what they are. I mean, I think a Dunkin' Donuts donut is its own unique form of deliciousness. It's its own yeah. special butterfly. It is. Yeah. It's a yeah. special butterfly. 
I'm curious, David, what is your relationship to that thing called blogging right now? You've been doing it for a while. Yeah, 1999, I started my site before people knew what a blog was. Mm -hmm. um, and even I didn't know what a blog was. And then in about 2004, there was a few people like Adam Roberts of Amateur Gourmet, Heidi Swanson of 101 Cookbooks, and Molly Weisenberg of Orange Jet. People kind of started, and then it was like, oh, did you see this new blog? It's a new blog, yeah. And now there's a lot, um, and it's changed a lot. Um, the good thing is there's a lot of voices out there. Anything, you know, if you want to learn about how to make, you know, Korean pancakes made with mung bean flour that's hand-milled, you can probably find that recipe and great photos. The quality of blogs, you know, I used to tell people, how do we get more people to read my blog? I'm like, do better, you know, really good photos and, you know, write well and be interesting. And now there's a lot of really good photos. You know, anyone can take a really good picture with a digital camera. Um, that's very true. That's a good point. I, I always remember that kind of, you know, working for Eater, if there was an independent blog, you'd read it and it was really good. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, thank God I found something that's really, you know. Yeah. And now I read these blogs that are amazing and they don't have any comments, um, you know, and I don't know who's reading them, but I kind of like, wow, this is great. More people know you know about this, but then there's, you know, thousands of others after them. Um, one thing that's interesting now is the discussion um, is going like, how do you sustain your blog? How do you avoid burning out? Because um, it's a lot of work. It's, you know, it used to be you could just throw up a picture and put up a story. And now everyone's scanning, you know, they're copy editing your site. You're making sure you didn't make a typo. You know, you can write, you know, 4,000 words on one thing. But if you say, you know, you know, nobody would ever eat that. And they're like, oh, I would. And you should say like, almost nobody would. You know, and you're saying, like, oh, okay, okay. So you have to all those details you have to defend everything a lot um you know i just got a pretty funny passive aggressive comment on my site this morning I was like, the best kind of comment oh my god and i mean you know, i'm the king of passive aggressive i'm like mm, i'm the wrong person to do that to so, <laughs> so what do you i mean do you do you moderate your comments I don't, you know, 99.9% .9 of people, I would say almost 100 are respectful and interesting. Um, and I don't have problems. Yeah. I have really good readers. I'm really fortunate. Um, I learn a lot from them. They're very engaged with me. I respond to their comments. Um, and I like it. I like my blog. I actually, I love my blog. I, I would love to be able to um, in the old days, you know, like I said, it would take a couple hours maybe to put up a post and now it's a couple days. You know, editing the photos. Now a you gotta, couple of days. Wow. Well, you know, you have to make the recipe, shoot it, edit the photos. You know, then you have to upload it and then link it on Facebook, Twitter, and, you know, make sure there's no type. You know, it's just a long, and then the server goes down, you got to call the server. And it's literally every aspect of the publishing process that, like, a newspaper or a magazine that has a staff of 50 people yeah. and an art director and a production department and a circulation department and a publicist and all yeah. that. I mean, when you're when you're doing an independent website, which is really what blogs are now, mm -hmm. they're independent businesses, you do everything. Even even at Eater, where we're like, you know, an official professional operation, we, we all do a lot. Well, people also don't realize, like, it's really hard to catch your own typos. Um, and I hired an editor for a while to just look at the, the posts before I put them up. And um, she was kind of overqualified. She was a very good editor, but she would come back and was like, well, when you say this, do you mean to say this and this and this? And then it added two more days to a blog post. And I was talking to a friend and he said, well, because I was saying, I didn't, this isn't what I want to do with my life. I wanted, you know, I want to be much more casual and I mm -hmm. don't care that, you know, I, I care about typos, but on the other hand, 
I do want to go out and see my friends and I want to go out to dinner <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. So yeah. I just you know, made an executive decision. You know what? That's the way it is. It's me. You know, if I make a mistake in French, too bad. If I make a typo, you know, I can fix it. It's okay. I don't care. Do you have a lot of French readers? I do. I have a lot of foreign readers. It's very interesting. But a lot of French people read my site. And I've had French people like stop me on the street. They go, oh, you, you understand French. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't just write about all the pretty things and little hands with macaroons in them. <laughs> oh, hands with macaroons That's in them. That's a whole yeah. Instagram account or something. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's pretty. But it's like, okay, I've seen the picture. So, do I, French people buy your cookbooks? Um, well, they're in English. Um, so, you know, it's kind of hard to sell a French person a French cookbook by an American, even though, you know, Ameri you know, in America, there are American cookbooks by French people. Whenever I travel abroad, one of my favorite things to do is to find American restaurants in whatever country I'm in. I was in Barcelona like a year ago. and Like McDonald's? Well, you look so for <laughs> McDonald's is its own separate thing. I, I actually do try to go to McDonald's in every country I go to. But I was in Barcelona and I was out with some friends like late at night and we walked past an American style 50s diner. Uh, and I was oof. like, we have to go. No, yeah. we have to go. I mean, it, it, it was awful. But it was awful in this ethnographically fascinating way because mm -hmm. it was so cool to see how the Spanish owners of this Spanish mm -hmm. restaurant American. perceived American culture. Well, see, most people... In the world, their only exposure to American food is through fast food restaurants. They don't see mm -hmm. farm to table. They don't know Blue Hill. They don't know Chez Panisse. You know, so they just see hamburgers, and that's what American cooking is to them. Um, but it is interesting. McDonald's, you know, McDonald's is wildly popular in France. Um, I think it's their second biggest market in the world. And it's because if you go into a McDonald's in a foreign country, they've adapted to the culture. Like you go into a McDonald's and they have a couple of Eames chairs. Um, what? In France. They have camembert on the hand, you know, the camembert burger. Um, they kind of adapt things to the locals and they have bathrooms that let you use and they're clean, you know. It sounds like they need to bring a French McDonald's to America. That's an amazing idea. Uh, Who yeah. can we call a McDonald's to make that happen? Mm, I don't know. Ray Kroc? No. He's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's the long founder. He's long dead. Um, well, it's something. Do a good American hamburger. You know, In-N-Out yeah. In Burger does it. Five Guys. You know, they do good fast food American right. burgers. So I have a very corny question for you, but okay. I think that we can just trust that somebody that's listening to this will, it'll be worth it for them. Is Do you have any advice for the bloggers out there that are getting started? Any, any big aha moment or takeaway hmm. that you have well the big my advice nowadays is do it because you love doing it um like working and people are like oh there was a whole area everyone wanted to go work in a restaurant I'm like you don't make any money working in a restaurant you know stay home subscribe to martha stewart living magazine have amazing dinner parties and then go back to your you know amazing job at the bank making <laughs> a lot of money um you know and you'll retire nicely um same with blogging you know i blogged for maybe eight years before, you know, I had to have zero comments for a long time. Um, and all my friends were like, you're wasting your time. You, know, you should be writing cookbooks rather than doing that. And then it changed. So while blogging, you know, it's a very crowded field now. The other thing is to find the next wave. Like we were there at that moment. So maybe now it's going to be video. Maybe, you know, I don't do video. I'm, you know, I can't, I, you know. I can barely put up a blog post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I tried to edit a 30-second video once. It took me eight hours, literally. Um, but the early entry advantage is huge. You know, the you, early advantage, yeah, it is huge. You, and you it's a very crowded field now. Um, I also had a name. And, you know, people, oh, he's a cookbook author. You know, some people like, I have his book. So I had a little bit of a, a, 
step up. So your advice um, to bloggers is don't blog. No, it's to do it because you love it or because you like doing it and don't expect to get anything out of it. I think that's really great advice because I've certainly had, you know, friends and stuff that have started various blogs for things and then mm. they just they just stop it after three whatever posts. Like I, I was, two more than most people. Yeah. Yeah. And they're oh, like, yeah. I, 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 what was I think? I don't want to do this. Yeah. What I don't understand is actually it's this interesting, I was going to say weird, but um, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, these bloggers get cookbook contracts and then they stop blogging as soon as they get the contract and they write their book and they never blog again. I'm like, well, is that why you were blogging? Like, and also, I don't think they sell a lot of books because they've lost this audience that was following them. So I don't quite understand why. I mean, blogging is a lot of work. I do it. You know, it's my it's my life. It's integrated into my life. Um, so that's something. That's a really interesting subject that somebody should pursue in an article. Somebody. <laughs> They're all pointing at me. Um. You take the rap for it, baby. <laughs> well, I will consider writing an article about it. David, we have a lightning round that ah, okay. we do at the end of each one of our shows. Greg and I are going to ask you a bunch of questions. Just, it's a safe space. Say the first thing that comes to mind. Do I get Don't, a hug afterwards? We, we will hug you. We'll hug and cry. <laughs> it will be the best. Okay, lightning round question number one. Okay. What is your airport vice? Airport? Yeah. Like when, when you're, you're in an airport. airport. What's the thing? What's the thing you go to? Well, if I'm in San Francisco, I get a burrito because they have really good burritos there. If I'm at other airports, the one in Paris, I usually make sure to bring food because they have um, not very good food choices. It's funny. We talked to Dan Barber and his airport advice was also burritos. Yeah. Something with you farm to table people and burritos. You love burritos. I also always bring, I wrote an article about it. It's called my French train travel kit. And it's always a little um, Ziploc bag with toasted nuts, dried fruit, some chocolate. It's like a trail mix. Wow. Because you never know. You might be trapped and people make fun of you until you're stuck on the tarmac for three hours and you're sitting there eating your pecans. And... Looking smug. Yeah, and they're freaking out. <laughs> um, what's your go-to drink order when you step into a bar you've never been to before? Manhattan. Rye Manhattan. And I look at yes. the bartender and if... I always tell people also, never order a drink if the bartender goes, what's that? Like, don't. No curveballs. Manhattan is kind of hard to mess up. Up or rocks? Up. Twist? Cherry? I like the cherry. Yeah, it's good. It's a snack. Yeah. I had a Martinez last night at um, Estrella? Estella? Estella. Estella, yes. And it didn't. It had an orange zest in it, which is fine, but I always like that little snack at the end. Did I you like, like Estella, by the way? I did. It was really good. Um, there was a couple of things um, I wanted more of, like mm-hmm. the steak. It's not a lot of meat. <laughs> right. It was, um, the, the, what do you call it? The salt cod fritters were excellent. Um, I actually liked the service. I thought they were really friendly and warm and wonderful. Um, and even the, the host was sort of sarcastic with me when I walked in, which was kind of cute. Um, I sort of thought that was funny. Very Parisian. Um, yeah, but um, it was funny, you know. Plowing through, what's your favorite TV show? Well, of all time or right now? Both. Right, yeah. Right now is Orange is the New Black because I just finished it and the second season freaked me out. So it was great. Do you watch it? I don't. Okay. Yeah, me neither. Okay, no spoilers. Okay. After the first episode of the second season, I for like three days, I couldn't function. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was really free. <laughs> it's great. Uh, what about of all time? I would say Six Feet Under. Oh, I thought that I was that a show. really amazing show, but, you know, challenge, very difficult topics handled really well. And the finale was probably the best finale of any show ever. I cried so hard yeah. during that finale that, like, 
my my then boyfriend was really concerned about my health. Oh, that's good. It's healthy that you, I mean, you were, it was emotional. It was very, have, did you watch the show? No, I haven't, but oh. I love dramas like this. So I'm just thinking I should just watch it this yeah, weekend. Yeah, the, the finale well, is like someone punching you in the face. Yeah, it's seven seasons and it's pretty, it's so well done. Great show. Um, if you're on a road trip in a car and you're by yourself, what is the album that you're blasting? I don't know. Oh, might be Shania Twain. I don't know why. I think she's kind of cool. <laughs> I like she lives in yeah. Switzerland. She's this country star who lives in Switzerland. She has like a giant castle in Switzerland, yeah. which is... That's cool. I did not know that. Yeah. Yes. She's Canadian. Oh, she is? She's of course Canadian. she's Canadian. Oh. She's a Canadian to Nashville to Switzerland prince. I mean, she's this and totally... It probably um, won't stop there. No. Yeah. Some other... But it's, a, it's she's this weirdly fast... So you sing along with Shania Twain? No, but I was, you know, sometimes like at home I listen to music when I'm working and people come over and like, what are you listening to? I'm like, well, I'm not sitting here with playlists. You know, I'm listening to like Kelly Clarkson because I'm making cake and she's belting out songs and it's fine. You know, we keep each other company. On that note, we got our last question and it's somewhat of a loaded question. I'll say that. What is your favorite dessert? It changes. Um, one of my all-time favorite dessert is Floating Island, and people either love it or hate it. You know, it's a it's a bowl of really cold creme anglaise with poached meringues and caramel sauce. And ideally, it should be sweet, but I don't really like things that are really sweet. It should be kind of sweet, but not too sweet. And the caramel sauce, the whole like, are you making a bad face, Helen? No. I can't tell. You're making a little. <laughs> no, I'm just. I'm. I've I've never had Floating Islands in a way that I like them. Yeah, I had it once and didn't like it. Yeah. It's something that not everybody likes. I love it. So I think that's my favorite dessert. Awesome. And I love the Chez Panisse almond tart. That's an amazing dessert. And when we took it off the menu at Chez Panisse, there was a lot of angst on my part. I was very, I did not go along with that decision. Is that recipe in any of your cookbooks? Um, well, it's on my blog, um, but it's from the Chez Panisse dessert cookbook as well by Lindsay Shear. It's actually an old French recipe um, that she um, adapted um, and it's amazing. But, you know, you have to make sure that you line the oven because you don't want to clean the oven after that thing has been in there for an hour. <laughs> but it's worth it. Awesome. Well, well, David, thank you for joining us. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I love being here. And I'm going to take you up someday on setting up a little desk in the corner and working with you. Yeah, David, leave it. It's working live from the Eater office. Thanks so much, Stay David. Tuned. They're all Thanks. eating and uh, <laughs> they're all eating and drinking coffee. It doesn't look like anyone is working. <laughs> awesome. I love it. Thanks so much, David. On the next episode of The Eater Upsell, we have Hugh Atchison. There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to itunes.com slash eateruppsell. And as always, you can visit eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone. Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bukamo, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our intern is Tanya Maitan. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening. <laughs>